Hey guys, and welcome back to the Skullcast for episode 82. I am sitting here at my desk. I am drinking a glass of, YouTube tells me to pronounce it like this, Beaujolais Nouveau wine. Aziel, did I get that right? Yes, it's uh, Beaujolais Nouveau. <clears throat> uh, I See, I said it slow so I wouldn't make it correct. <laughs> well, you, you you did, my good sir. Mm. Azil, welcome to the show. Hello, how are you? How are you doing? How is going? Uh, it's going pretty fine, thank you very much. How is Westworld? <laughs> well, I don't know. I'll tell you, you know, when I see the last episode. Right, the finale is airing yeah. tomorrow. Yeah, of season one. So far, you know, I want to say so far so good, but I don't know. I'm just, you know, I'm kind of dreading. Uh, the finale, I think uh, it could go either way. It's kind of a lost situation where you get all these stuff that's been building up, mysteries and stuff like that, and I feel like the way they'll tie it uh, will uh, decide whether it sucks or not. So I'm pretty... like I've already, It reminds like, me of Lost Season 1, where it was like, hey, this could really be something. And then season two hit, and you're like, oh, boy. And then you see, yeah, and then the smoke monster. Yeah. <laughs> and then you realize they're never going to explain that polar bear. Yeah. This show isn't quite at that point where it's like the wires are being exposed, and you can see that they don't really know what the fuck they're doing. It's still a pretty good show so far. Yeah, I think it's, uh, honestly, I think it's not too bad. Some parts bother me more than others. Like, I think the parts with the two guys and Maeve are a bit... You know, they linger in too long. The guys are a little too stupid. Yeah, some, otherwise pretty good. I mean, some good actors they got in there. So, yeah, I'm I'm pretty happy with it. And I thought uh, episode nine was, you know, pretty damn good. Maybe the best of the season so far. So mm-hmm. I'm hoping uh, 10 also manages to reach that uh, level. And if not, if it sucks, well, you know, it's just another shitty series. <clears throat> yep. But yeah, so f- so far, I think it's pretty good. Grail, uh, your secret schnoz has kicked off. Have you received your gift yet? Yes, I actually did. Uh, Zion Horsey was kind enough to uh, send me over some some vegan jerky, which I've been enjoying. And uh, I'm going to be sending off my gifts this weekend. And I really hope my schnoz likes it. So it's, it's going well. It seems like it's all going according to plan and everyone is receiving their gifts on schedule or early. Very so. good, very good. Yeah, I was surprised to see them so early. I, I figured... You know, it'd be like a Christmas thing, but it's like an early Christmas kind of thing. Yeah, it's sort of turning out to be like a Skullnight.net Hanukkah. Like, it's like oh. 20, 25 days of gift giving. <laughs> I, cool. I'm enjoying it. But yeah, besides that, I've been kind of busy just preparing for the holidays and uh, buying my uh, dress for my company's holiday party, which is on a Monday night. And I'm still not, I'm still not, I'm still upset about it. <laughs> I so. I have to get a costume myself for my company's holiday party, and I I don't Ooh. know what the fuck I'm gonna do. I'm probably I don't I honestly don't know. I'm terrible. Do you have to buy things. a Do you have to buy a suit? Oh, oh you should God. you know dress as Ken Bone. Yeah, is, dress as Ken Bone. <laughs> Ken Bone. Uh, I don't have the red sweater, relevant. man. I I you know I could have bought that sweater. There was a time. Yeah. Well, uh, maybe it's out of print, or it's it's out of print. Hey, it's what out are you production. saying about my weight anyway? Huh? Or my hair, huh? <laughs> I'm not Ken Boney. I'm not Ken Bone-like. Oh, you're totally in the bone zone, my friend. <laughs> Get in the bone zone. Yeah. yeah. Holiday times are busy. Hmm. Well, we're here to wrap up volume 20. That's not true. We're going to begin volume 20, the reread. Yeah. Um, 
there is not a lot of Berserk news right now. Uh, really, the only nugget I wanted to land on in terms of Berserk coverage was that uh, the Miura interview from the guidebook um, has been kind of, uh, I'll say, unofficially translated by fans. Uh, it was a post made on Reddit, a series of posts that had all the pages translated. Uh, that was linked to on Skullnight.net if you have not seen it yet. Uh, and it is a very, very long interview. Uh, as you probably already also know, Puella has begun her translation. The first two pages of hers are done. But now we also have the full scope of it that we can look at and see, in general, what is being said uh, by Miura in the, this massive interview, which is, as I said, very long. Azil, I think you said it was, if not the longest, at least one of the top two or three longest inter Miura interviews that we know of. Yeah, I think the second longest after the one in uh, Bezak Freaks 2. Cool. Um, I really enjoyed it. Uh, a few of the highlights, if you guys have not seen it, he mentions that Serpico was somewhat based on Andre from Rose of Versailles, which I thought, as soon as I saw that, it kind of made sense. Like, oh, kind of, I can see that. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, the other surprising thing for me was um, that he came up with the idea for the Berserk armor around the time that the Beast of Darkness first appeared in Volume 16. So a good 10 volumes out of planning for how that would, would happen. Um, and he also kind of just teased a few things about, you know, like Shirke and Isidro being a natural couple. <laughs> As um, I called out over 10 yeah, years ago, 10 fucking years, I said so, and it's gonna <laughs> happen. <laughs> I, I, yes. He said something along the lines of like, it would make sense or that, that that's, a, that, that's in its right order. Mm -hmm. like that, you know? Call me the prophet from now on. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Good work, Mr. Prophet. <laughs> and um, he also Sorry. teased some things about the future, just really, a, a, you know, th not very thickly veiled. Like he says something like, you know, some, some Griffith's making a world that people, people might look in his favor. But, you know, what will the future hold for Fantasia? I wonder. And he laughs. So, <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't try to derive anything from that kind of statement, you know, especially since uh, in Japanese, you know, even more, I would say. Uh, you know, obfuscated than in English. So, you mm -hmm. know, basically like, hmm, I wonder, hmm, what could it be? As he <laughs> laughingly, you know, lets you know that he already knows what it will be. Sure, <laughs> yeah. Damn you! Remember the, <laughs> time he, he remember the time he said on TV that we would soon know what the God End were all about? <laughs> <laughs> I do remember that. I was I very excited that. about that. It was in 96, I remember. <laughs> <laughs> Pepperidge oh Farm remembers, okay? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh, get, shit. Get your family guy jokes off my podcast. <laughs> uh, that was that was 2012, and boy, was I excited to see that. And, uh, yeah. And we still are. Um, we still are excited. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Anyway, it's really interesting. Check it out if you have not already. Um, it's on the uh, current episode section. But we are here to discuss volume 20, which uh, I'm looking at right now. One of the more distinct covers because, yeah. I guess... It doesn't right? have guts. And it exactly. Has it does wow. not feature guts on it. Wow. And it's actually, How'd that get past the editors? Yeah. yeah I think it's actually one of my favorite covers. Uh, I think it's pretty badass. Yeah, I agree. It's pretty mysterious. Yeah, I love it. And, you know, I, I mean, it kind of... Like, the cover itself already tells you what's going to happen at the end of the arc. You know, it's like... Okay, there's Casca. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think it's actually it's, it's pretty ballsy from your spot to do that. You see Casca, it's a direct, how to say, 
like it's a tie to what we see at the beginning of the volume, which is like she had the uh, <clears throat> the child, her child, protecting her from uh, the darkness around the specters. But here, Mira chose to represent it as uh, like a baby bird or whatever, <clears throat> baby falcon. So it's already like a hint of what's going to happen. Yeah, it's, it's kinda, making that connection. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. I mean, it's, to me, it's kind of crazy and ballsy of Mira to do that. So I don't know about you guys, but and I wonder how many people were like, hmm, I wonder what this could mean. I don't think there's any way you can take it otherwise. I mean, uh, particularly because the, the, the head of it itself, you know, bears that the same contour of Femto's helmet and all that kind of stuff Yep. as well. Um, I, what I like about this is the lighting as well, you know, and, and it, as you said, it's indicative of how the volume opens with her surrounded by the uh, specters, but you know, it, she, the light source emanating from the child and then she herself is surrounded by darkness. And it's like the way the light's playing off of her skin. That's kind of what makes this volume cover work. I think it's really cool. Yeah. Very nice. Uh, volume 20 is uh, memorable for me personally because it is uh, where I first started reading episodically. Uh, towards the end of the volume, um, I think Old it's man. 165. Yeah, what, <laughs> episode 165. It was a hilarious uh, episode to start with because it's the one where – it's the very one, last one of the, of the volume where you open it up and the very first page is Guts in the hand with the moon above him. It's a very dramatic, like, fight. And keep in mind, like, you know, we had – there was two volumes for the content we had not seen yet. So it was jumping from 18 to this. Like, holy shit, what is happening? <laughs> it's like starting berserk like, like I did and starting to buy the volumes. And then you see volume 18's cover and you're like, oh, well, I guess that's the end of the series then. What's going on? Huh. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, um, volume 20 is uh, kind of where my starting point is for the long haul. But um, it's also, I, I kind of pair these two, 20 and 21 together. Because they are truly, like, you know, that's the full incarnation ceremony. Everything, pretty much everything happens in those two volumes, you know. And this is the build-up to the ultimate, you know, destruction that happens uh, in 21 as well. So, Yeah, it's a very, hand hand. very connected. I mean, it yeah. makes sense. I, I kind of confuse them myself. Like, I, you know, sometimes I forget where one ends, where the other begins. Because it's so, it's like a series of things that... You know, you can tell the, you know, volume, div div dividing them in volumes is just not a natural way they're supposed to be. Like, it's a kind of stream mm -hmm. of things that are uninterrupted, which is, you know, like we we've seen before that Mura himself, sometimes he doesn't remember, like, in which volume things happen, because you can yep. tell, like, in his mind, he sees the whole story. He doesn't see them divided by, oh, this is volume one, volume two, volume 26. Yep. Let's go ahead and open it up. Um, the key image for the, uh, for the issue as you open it up is of course, uh, alluding to the Behirid apostle, uh, you know, his, basically his death is what that scene represents the piled on top of the, the bodies piled on top of his eyes, you know, full of fear. And this, this volume really is, uh, you know, it, a large chunk of it is about his origin story, uh, which is one of the more interesting ones. At least he's the, one of the more unique characters in the Berserk universe because, of you know the nature of him be, being an apostle and you know what his sacrifice was and all that is very unique amongst all the other characters. Yeah, uh, I think he's uh, the most unusual apostle of them all, pretty much. Certainly, yeah. Um, let's go ahead and start it up. Um, volume nineteen left us a little. You know, if you weren't, if you're not read ahead, you don't know exactly how Casca was able to survive. 
being de- apparently devoured by the specters. But uh, this, as the volume opens, it becomes very clear that, you know, they're right uh, up in her face, but she's being protected by her child, which appeared. And so that she, he's keeping it at, at uh, the rest of them at bay, a uh, very close distance. Um, and as we know from the previous volume, all they've all amassed into this giant uh, specter, which we see coming through the wall uh, with Mosgus. There's a much larger um, version, a conglomeration of all the specters is the one that's approaching Mosgus. And uh, that's kind of where I wanted to start in terms of this episode was, you know, why you guys think the Behirid Apostle took action here? And I, I don't actually have a solid answer. Uh, like if I had to give an answer for this and the same answer I would give for why he chose to empower uh, the, the goat was he just wanted to see how things would play out because he is kind of, as I think as Elliot said, he's approaching as kind of like a scientist might, or, you know, even like an mm-hmm. alien, right? He's just yeah doing experiments to see, to create chaos and see what happens from that chaos. I think there's two components to this. The first one is what he says himself later in the volume. He said he saw people who needed his power, you know, like they needed help. And so he gave them power and watched what they did with that power. So it's, again, in a sense, he's, you know, uh, undoing humans with power and watching them like a, you know, scientist, a sociologist, anthropologist would do, and like, hmm, so that's how they react, you know. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I think, like, he's an apostle, so he's inherently evil, you know, he's not a good person. And because you could say, like, when he, you know, stung uh, the, you know, goat, you know, dude, idol dude, whatever... Uh, like, this is not a good guy. Like, he's not, you know, and the same thing with Mosgus. He's saving Mosgus' life, but Mosgus was not a good person. So, as he does these things, you know, he's not necessarily doing them. He's also, my point is, he's also, uh, working in favor of the events that are unfolding. So, mm. in the process of doing his little experiments, he's also working in favor of one side, which is the side of chaos and the side of making sure the ceremony happens as it should uh, happen. So, thwarting, uh, thwarting guts, you know, that kind of stuff. He's, you know, uh, working against guts' interests mm-hmm. in this. Uh, the other interesting thing visually about the way this is all presented is, you know, Mazgus is in, a, is in the, the same temple that he was praying in previously in, in volume 18, you know, devoting himself to God. And here he is faced with an enemy that he can't defeat. And, you know, in this same temple, you know, something comes down from the heavens and grants yeah. him power, you know. So she's <laughs> not, not very heavenly. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> but from, down from the sky, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's not clear whether he sees it happen. It looks, it's, it seems like his disciples see this thing attacking him. But from Mazgus's perspective, you can see how you might just think, oh, well, this is just straight up divine intervention. God has granted me power, and that's all there is to Yeah, this. they yeah. actually, they, they call it like the bird guy calls out. He's like, you know, saying, Mosgusama, but the thing stings him before. And you see, he's just yelling and saying he'll accept the challenge and gladly mm-hmm. die for God. And then you see his eyes, you know, getting fucked up <laughs> as he's stung. Yeah. And then he starts foaming at the mouth. And, you know, as they try to react, they also get stung with like the blazing fast, you know, uh, stinger. So, yeah. One thing you didn't mention is, uh, how to say, Mosgus hilarious, uh, come at me gesture, you know, with his, you know, palm extended, like, you know, in a Bruce Lee style fashion as it opens. Yeah. <laughs> with his cra- crazy eyes and crazy face. Um, you know, pretty good fighting, uh, 
taunting here, even though he doesn't have anything to back it up. Yep, it's kind of the uh, the the opposite emotion from the Daiba emoticon when he's doing a similar gesture or just different atmosphere to the scene. Yeah, Daiba is just calm and confident, whereas he's, yeah. this guy is frenzied. <laughs> he's insane, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so they get transformed. Of course, we don't see that until later. And it's actually interesting throughout the volume how Miura you know relates the transformation because it's not immediately clear. You know what it is that has happened to them, but uh, you know it, it kind of slowly reveals itself uh, through the course of the volume. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, as a reader, like if you've read whole of Berserk, you, you come into this, you remember what happened with uh, Zondark, and you're like, okay, I and mean, this is an apostle mm-hmm. that stings other and transforms into actual monsters. I mean, it doesn't take a genius to understand what's going on. You know, he's. Uh, you don't know, like transforming them pretty much just like no uh, no i meant the the nature of what the actual transformation happened like for example oh the yeah wounds are yeah, yeah sure until later yeah, yeah sure yeah i agree mm-hmm. sorry at first it's just mazgas has this flame breath and it's like huh the rest of them look kind of just slightly more veined yeah that's all bu- that's happened yeah they're just buffed up you know right it reminds me of altered beast <laughs> power, power up, up. <laughs> Oh, that game. Nobody born before, I don't know. <laughs> no, everyone from our generation will know that reference. Yeah, but... <laughs> or Guaranteed. <laughs> yeah. Moving along, we pan over to uh, Jerome and his group as they're trying to decide what to do. They know this, you know, the last time we saw them, they were escaping from Nina's cell. And so they're trying to decide what the best course of action is. You know, Isidro wants to go down uh, and Jerome saying the best... The way to go is up, and of course, they, neither of them know what the, the best course of action should be, but really, they're surrounded on either side. It doesn't really matter. But they end up facing the, the, the ooze, the spectral ooze from both sides. And uh, what I like about this, what immediately happens afterwards is uh, Isidro is looking around for a stone to throw, which is, you know, his new superpower. <laughs> and uh, he can't find anything, but all he can find is like a little pebble. And he just looks at it, just like pissed off. With- Why well, it looks like a stone would be very useful against this? Of course, yeah. mass, but you know, I mean, there's one course of action. You know, there's one thing you didn't say, but you know, as they run up, uh, you know, Lucas worried about Casca, uh, and you know, she has uh, Nina if she's hurt, and you see that shot, that just one single shot of her, uh, you know, finger and a bleeding finger, and so I just thought it's interesting, you know, relating to the fact she, you know, basically betrayed Casca in exchange right. for not being hurt. So just a small, just one panel, but I, I find it found it interesting yeah it's i mean to me that that exchange there and the focus on the 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 finger implies that she's harboring some guilt about the scenario you know elaine being placed in danger yep and also you know it's reminding readers about her role in the current things yeah uh in mazga swole this giant column of flame i really like how this is drawn too it's just you know it's not very often we see this particular kind of supernatural thing happen in the series so it's interesting to see, to see how Mira drew it. You know, this giant column of flame coming through and just dispelling the yeah the, the specters. And I like how you see them, you know, bubbling like you know, uh, <laughs> just before you see they're like they explode. You know, as he just yeah you know. the the wind is coming out of their like orifices, the, the eyes and the mouths. The you can see that happening. The way it explodes It's very cool. Yep. <laughs> And the following panels, we see the the child in trying to fight off the flame before you know losing losing strength and kind of just swirling away. Yeah, passed he act- out basically. He, act- he actually protects his mother from it, which is mm-hmm. again like he's the kind of sacrifice he keeps doing for her. Yep, and it's I mean it's kind of a blink and you miss it exchange, but it is a very cool uh, 
element to the scene here. This child, you know, once again tries to protect the mother, but in this case is unable to do it completely. You know, he stops the flame from hitting her, but that's all he can do. Yeah. And he, then she, she passes out. He pretty much gets, uh, I mean, that's like the last of his powers. He pretty much gets beaten up bad by this, like, like the other, uh, specters. Right. And it doesn't happen until later in the volume, but the Behirid Apostle you know, notes that it is ex- exhausted itself at this point as yeah, well. Yeah, pushed too far. Right. And then we see Mazgus and his people have been transformed, but it's not clear exactly how, just that, you know, Mazgus has witnessed a miracle. He's holding Casca. So the, the dynamic has changed now. You know, he is determined to burn Casca at the stake, which he thinks will stop the ceremony, which, you know, I'm kind of on the fence about whether it would have had an effect or not. I feel like the momentum of the incarnation ceremony would have continued because these, these specters are still out there and they're just feeding on, you know, this, the, the malice that's in this area, you know, Casca was the spark, but even, even if she was gone, I, I tend to think that it would continue, but we just don't know, you know, we never are presented with that. Uh, you know, I don't so. think, yeah, I don't think we'd have stopped anything. You know, I yeah. mean, Casca, you know, like there's this commentary on this, uh, at some point where it says that it's not like just, just guts and Casca alone wouldn't draw this like enormously huge mass of, Specters, and we actually see it later on because as they journey together, you know, in volume uh, 23, we see that you know that they, they draw a lot of specters and it tires guts and everything, but you know, it's nothing on this scale. So, obviously, mm-hmm. this like these events, the fact the buried apostle is there that he sacrificed and everything, it's stuff that was, I mean, it's nothing new, but it's stuff that was planned long in advance by the idea of evil. And then, you know, with the help of the, you know, God hand. So it's stuff that's taken a long time, maybe even, you know, centuries of planning and little stuff and decades at least to, to make it bring together. So, uh, I think even, I actually think Mosgus was supposed to kill her, you know, the way things were supposed to be. And that would have changed absolutely nothing. She would have just been killed. And then these guys would have been killed. And that's it. Mosgus wouldn't have yeah. stopped, you know, shit. Sure. Yeah, I guess what we as readers are supposed to understand here is that it it's so many factors piling on top of each other, and that's what leads to the crescendo, sort of. Yeah, and Mosgus is just like he's he's not uh, he's not going ag- against the grain here. He's just an agent of chaos. He's going against guts, but he's he's nothing. You know, he wouldn't have been probably uh, at Griffiths. Uh, you know, uh, appeared like that. Uh, you know. He would have just kneeled to him like that and said, "Oh, this is the holy one," mm-hmm. and he would have been a servant to him. I mean, I'm just now; it's just pure speculation out of my ass. But that's I'm pretty sure it wouldn't have opposed anything, wouldn't have stopped anything. He would have seen the tower fall. We have said, "Ah, oh, this is God's will. This land was cursed and evil. Now it's been purified, and, <laughs> and that's it." I mean, you know, the the thing is. With fanatics like that, everything can be rationalized. Even as he was about to to die, uh, you know, to a huge mass of evil things, right before he was stung, he was ready to accept it. And he said it was God's will. And, you know, in death, you find redemption, whatever. You know, you can just bullshit your way out of anything. So I, I don't think would have, you know, I think would have just rationalized it. Mm, sure. Uh, the, one other detail about the flame breath from Malthus is that his hat is partially destroyed or on <laughs> yeah. fire. I like that he added that to that. <laughs> That's his a nice mouth. detail. And you know, it's yeah. funny because, like, even though he already he, he always looked like a crazy guy, but he somehow looks even 
crazier here. Like you can tell he's not human anymore with his black eyes with square purples and you know the thing. He just looks completely, you know. Like you can tell mm-hmm. he's he's different. He's not just, you know, the same anymore. Yeah, his square pupil is like holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> even to that detail is squared. Yeah. His square face, square like eyes. His, his face has become even squarer, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's basically a PS1 game at this point. Yes, he's achieved true squaritude. <laughs> Uh, what's interesting about Mazka, see, now that he's been empowered, is, you know, this whole series of Reserk, you know, we have these characters, humans that transcended, you know, their humanity to, to attain power you know, through sacrifices. And Mazka is someone who kind of, you know, landed in, you know, a, apostle sphere level power uh, without having undergone that. And he mostly did it to himself. Of course, the Behirat Apostle empowered him with, you know, these additional things, but... You know, he was already kind of monstrous to begin with as a human, all through his own doing and through the doing of, you know, the Holy See basically to turn him into the kind of person that he is. Mm-hmm. I just thought it was interesting that Mira depicts different kinds of monsters, you know, one purely, you know, manipulated by overlords and others by, you know, through the church and their doings. Yeah, it's a kind of, you know, like it's a reflection of what monster means, you know. Like the the word uh, in Latin, you know, uh, monstrum, it means people who are shown, you know, it means showing something. It's because back in the day, people who are deformed, who had physical deformities because of malnutrition, that kind of stuff, you know, they had like weird limbs or stuff like that, tumors or well, just weird faces. So people were, you know, like they were being exhibited and, you know, stuff like that. So here, Mosgus disciples are actually like prime examples of what monsters were back in the day, you know, people who looked different, who were misshaped, you know. And then there's a, you know, of course, monsters, supernatural monsters, as the term has come to be understood, apostles, this kind of stuff. Even though Mira's take is to make monsters out of humans and not just like, I don't know, orcs or whatever creatures. And then you got monsters... uh as in, you know, people who have no empathy, serial killers, torturers, and Mosgus is a prime example of that. Some, someone who has like no, apparently no feelings for his fellow humans and who will kill and, you know, torture without remorse or just probably enjoys it. So yeah, it's interesting to see all these concepts mixed, mixed together and uh, compared against one another, or even faced with each other. Well, in, in particular for, for Mosgus is, you know, his monstrosity comes from, him rationalizing the doctrine of the church to you know to rule over people in this very torturous way, and he he can he can read the scripture however he wants, and he chooses to read it in the most strict adherence possible, just so he can be basically be the person that he is. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's just it's no different from you know uh, uh, ISIS, you know, who will just say, oh, because of the you know the Quran, we just must kill people, whatever, and just you know. Hundreds of examples like that. You you had the Inquisition, you know, in the old days, that kind of stuff. People who just chose, well, you know, I can interpret this to say that I can kill and, you know, destroy and rape and whatever, whoever I want, so I'm just going to do it. It's, uh, you know, basically, you know, how to say, criminals who are just justifying their actions with, you know, whatever they can. When Mosgus makes his intent pretty clear about what he's intending to do, I like that Jerome even draws a sword. You know, this guy who is a member of the Holy Iron Chain Knights, you know, 
drawing a sword on Mazgus. <laughs> yeah. you know, he's, he's taking a stand, although he's very reluctant to do so, and he, he comments on that. Yeah, because um, he knows, I mean, if he kills a priest, man, and people know about this back home, yeah. he's, he's finished. Yeah, and it takes Mazgus back as well. He pauses to, you know, basically issue his surprise that they're willing to draw swords against him, because he's like, I'm doing this as my holy mission. What could you possibly, why would you possibly want to stand against me? He's confused by that at least for a moment, but doesn't hesitate to send his dis disciples after them. Uh, the first that comes is the super tall one who is, as Azil said, buffed up. And you can actually begin to see on his shoulders the what will eventually become the sprouting wings uh, yep. in a few pages. But he's uh, all veined up and crazy looking. Uh, I just like how immediately overpowered they are, <laughs> <laughs> even though they're... You know, untransformed. They, they look a little uncomfortable, is what they look like. This guy with all the, the chains. Well, I mean, you look at his face. He's already, like, yeah. you, you can tell he's not human anymore. He, he was pretty ugly before, but now he's, mm -hmm. like, his arms are longer. You know, like, he's more, like you say, old, veiny and, you know, sinewy. You, you can tell uh, he's not, even his teeth and his face. He's just, you know, like, he's been... Like, uh, again, it's like Zondark to me. He's been, you know, like mm -hmm. transformed. It's like when people see him, it's like, wow, what, 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 what went on? What happened to him? Yeah. Uh, the, the next few scenes actually are interesting. I like the way that Mira, you know, sets expectations and then, you know, changes them by having Jerome draw his sword on these guys and obviously be immediately overpowered by him just you know, throwing a, call, a direct column from the base of the tower at them. Uh, and, of course, they can't do anything about that. It breaks through the wall. Um, but, you know, Guts will eventually come, and then he'll face, you know, multiple of these guys. And so it then it again turns the tables on the expectations for power in this fight, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, one thing I like about this scene is how dynamic it is, like, you know, graphically. You see the guy throwing the, you know, big claw with a chain. Then you see it grab the pillar. Then you see just his motion as he pulls it back. And you get this huge page. And I, I think that panel is just, you know, mag you know, really magnificent where you see, uh, you know, part of the column being ripped off and then, you know, uh, caroling towards the screen. You know, it even, uh, how to say, it's drawn over the, panel below i think it's a very dynamic shot uh, very impressive like you know graphically um one of the most beautiful is the volume to me yeah volume 20 in particular I, I should have said so but like some of the biggest spectacle of the entire series 20 and 21 go you know hand in hand with that just you know the tower falling the rise and fall of this this, this whole thing is just incredible the scale of all the images that mirror is drawing um it's crazy bigger than most of the volumes in the series 34 comes to mind, but other than that, in terms of scale, uh, this is up there. Uh, in terms of him throwing the column, also I like that the, the fire kind of like uh, separates from the wind being pushed around by the column yeah. as he's throwing it. I thought that was really cool. Detail. Yeah, even, even the wind, you know, like you like the, the way it's represented as, you know, having some kind of wind, you know, from how mm -hmm. fast and how massive it is. Yeah, yeah. all that is pretty pretty cool. So that makes a hole in the top of the tower, which you know draws uh, Azan's attention. I thought that was really interesting that Mira is just basically showing you know the scale of things that are happening. The tower's crumbling, and Azan's stuck down there trying to protect people, but doesn't know what's happening at the top. This cuts away for a moment to show them. Yeah, and you also see something you've commented on before, but Mira bothers to show the aftermath of the attack, where you see the pillar crumbling. Uh, and, you know, the bricks from the hole in the wall also, you know, uh, 
how to say, falling down, which is a prelude to uh, Luca and Nina, you know, falling. So I, I thought it was interesting that feeling of continuity in the scene. Yep. And it, it creates an immediate predicament here uh, where Luca has slipped and uh, Nina's holding onto her, Jerome's holding Nina and Isidro, and Puck are holding onto Jerome, trying to keep the chain in action. Uh, you know, you could argue that this is mirroring what happened with uh, Guts and Griffith holding on to hands here. Yep. Of course, it happens again mm. later as well with Serpico and Farnese, I think. Yep. But uh, immediately overhead, the Behirid Apostle's peering over and looking looking down at the, the scene. Uh, and just then he catches a glimpse, <laughs> I love this scene so much, of the Skull Knight, you know, in the moonlight with the moon behind him, creating this massive foreboding evil looking shadow across the top of the dome is very cool is the the, uh, the eye of the apostle is just like <laughs> wide with bright <laughs> and then we end the volume with uh cutting back to guts with pucks guiding him along guided by the sensation uh with farnese right behind him i absolutely love this picture of guts the, the dynamic the movement of everything you know the way his arm is drawn exactly it's all perspective and it even even going along with puck Puck's contour going along with Guts' contour. It's just really, really composed really well. Yep. I love it. I agree. I love it. Puck guiding them. That's it. Mm. So we go back to uh, the, you know, big tall guy who's throwing another pillar, grabbing it and throwing like that. And, you know, I love Isidro's little comments here where he's telling Jerome, he, you know, he's twirling, he's twirling, he's grabbing, he's grabbing, <laughs> you know, he's coming. So just, you know, hurry up, hurry up. And so we cut uh, to see the greatest character to have ever been drawn on paper, <laughs> whose, <laughs> whose shadow looms like death above the apostle. <laughs> we see, you know, unknowing humans below. So, you know, I, I love this I love shot. The, the, I love the leisurely nature of this scene. You know, just how e- evil it looks. Yeah. <laughs> if you had no context of this, it would look like a very evil character. Exactly. You know, the fact he like the whole deliberate he pulls his sword you know like that <laughs> it's amazing because you know it's like a horror story while a helpless yeah. young woman is about to be butchered by the you know bad killer except the victim is a monster and it's mm-hmm. hunter is a righteous one so this is something i think we rarely see people comment on but you know to me it's why the skull is so cool because he's so cold and calculating and lethal and everything he's you know like the embodiment of death as luca you know says just after that but you know I just find it interesting. Sure, and that last panel too, just like my blade is hungry. Yeah, pretty much. He wants to eat. <laughs> Holding it in front of him. Like it's like Jason, yeah. you know, about to, you know, cut a guy in half. But so yeah, I just I just love I mean I, I love this character. It's not a surprise to no one, but the best. So, you know, then we see uh, you know, Nina and Luca, you know, uh, as Luca is about to fall and this is a continuation of uh, you know, a little story of Nina's character. I would say even a little study of it, uh, throughout these volumes and this, you know, uh, chapter of the series. So we see her dark side again as she considers the power she holds over Luca. You know, we see that shot of her mouth, a kind of half smile. And, you know, it's a hint of the temptation she feels, the fact she could just let go and condemn uh, Luca to certain death. So, you know, I, I find it interesting. And then, you know, it's, uh, you, you know, it brings back to what you said uh, earlier, Walter, where Mira subverts it by av- having Luca let go by herself to Nina's absolute shock and dismay. So she doesn't even understand why it happens. So I, I really love that because she was considering it and, you know, feeling power from it. But then Luca does it by herself. 
and Nina's shocked and is saddened by it. So it just turns the table uh, on her character, and you know, it, it again it just shows uh, how a weak person reacts to this kind of stuff. So, not the first time that Luca has sacrificed herself to save someone else. Yep. Um, but also, I actually wonder, based on the the long vertical panel of Luca's face immediately after Nina's smile, if she actually knows what's happening, if she she senses that Nina. Is, is feeling those things, and she basically robs her of that moment and just says, I'm just going to take this into my own hands and drop myself. Yeah, it actually could be. It's a, it's a good, you know, good good question. I think her look, you know, you see the sweat on her face, you see, it's it's possible. Mm-hmm. Or she could just very well have been altruistically saying, you know, I don't want to be the one that makes you fall, so I'm just going to fall. Yeah, I think there's a, she, you know, she... You know, it's what she reveals later on, but she's thinking about it and calculating the risk and everything that's going right. on, if she can be, <laughs> you know. Well, she's a clever girl, you know. And uh, Yeah. No, no, I just like, I like, we'll get into it, but her rationalization for how she was going to fall properly is really funny. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So, another thing I like uh, is, uh, again, on the graphic side of things, in that shot where she lets go, uh, I mean, after that, where you see Nina's reaction, uh, you see these little droplets of blood falling down towards the screen, and you know they continue down in the next panel, everything. And I love that effect of uh, death, you know, in that you know, uh, in that panel, you know, like those droplets, like that as she extends her fingers. I don't know. I just think like these little things, just amazing. I mean, what? Yeah, it adds some dimension yeah. to it. Yeah, just yeah. the perspective. You know, what an amazing illustrator. You know. Anyway, and then, you know, as Lita, uh, Luca falls, uh, she sees something jump from above, gain speed, yeah. it passes the other, it's like, you know, faster than the eye can see. So, you know, <laughs> she mistakes uh, the skull knife for the Grim Reaper, the avatar of death, which I find also, uh, you know, quite interesting. I mean, any other author wouldn't bother with this, but, you know, not yeah. Mira. He's bothering. <laughs> he takes the time to convey Luca's misconception about what she's seeing. Uh, you know, she's seeing death come and take her as she falls to, you know, well, her death. So, yeah, pretty cool. And in the process, we see some, you know, pretty cool shots of uh, the Skull Knight, you know, and um, how to say, as he's pursuing the Apostle from the tower, from the top of the tower to the bottom, some crazy angles, you know. Yeah, <laughs> it's hard to keep track really of love this. which yeah. way is up. Even it is tough to follow because in, in one scene, you're seeing him come towards the, the reader, and the next you're seeing him go away from the reader, and they're seeing him a different angle. But he's basically just doing his best to traverse this, and it gives the impression of flight to everyone else. Yeah, and you know, you get to see this angle with, you know, some guy's nose, you know, up the guy's nose. Something. Yeah. <laughs> then you see the horse also fall down, you know, yeah. as if he's just, you know, oh, I'm just falling down, you know. It's just some pretty yeah, the horse stuff. isn't even, you know, doing anything fancy. It's just falling. <laughs> yeah, it's just, you know, oh, it's this nothing. So yeah, once. <laughs> One thing I didn't really think about before reading this volume was, um, you know, presuming that Skull Knight is Geyseric and the uh, the wise man was tortured here in this tower, then this is, uh, you know, he knows this place pretty well. It's possible <laughs> that he even had this place built, so he's kind of returning to these pla- this place. Oh, he yeah. He never comments on it or even hints at it, you it, know. It was uh, his summer vacation place, you know, yeah. before. <laughs> so it's just, oh, you know. So anyway... Um, we cut back to, as, as they are falling like that, we cut back to more immediate matters because, you know, the others are, are puzzled by what they just saw, but the zombie face guy scream as he throws uh, uh, another pillar at them. So, you know, then 
just to make me lie, what I said before about the greatest character ever, we see the greatest character <laughs> ever <laughs> executes the, like the, his trademark ba badass entrance. So we see, you know, I just love this. You see the, the, you know, his cape flap in the wind, which, you know, signals his arrival. We then see a blur of motion that meets the blur of motion from the pillar. And then, you know, the pillar splitting in half and then the dragon slayer held by guts as he splits it. And it's just, I mean, it's like the perfect page, you know, you know, gets arrived. Well, this, pers this particular perspective, you know, Miura has not experimented very much with this first person type of view, you know, as if you're seeing him straight on like this. He hasn't done this very often. So it's cool to see him do it, particularly with the Dragon Slayer, you know, bisecting the panel. It is yep. very effective. Yep. Very, very nice. And just, you know, I mean, it's so like economical. You, you barely mm -hmm. see him on screen. It's just, you know, four panels. You know, the cape, as you see the others react as they are about to be crushed. You know, you see with the one shot as he intercepts the thing, then he breaks it. And, you know, what's great is, uh, <clears throat> how to say, on the next page, it's just, you know, like the motion doesn't stop. In one fell swoop, guts keeps pushing forward. He, you know, uh, contours the enemy. He gets past to get to Casca. He swipes at Masgus, but... He uses uh, his new f newfound wings to avoid the blow. So we, we just get that, you know, right. big, you know, uh, very fast motion in some, you know, nice double page. Before he, yeah, no, I, I love the, how quickly he was able to get past her defenses and move immediately to Casca, you know, he doesn't waste any time. Uh, after he splits the column in half, if you look at the following page, you see the remains of the column hit to either side of Jerome and Ines Sedro, which I thought was a really cool effect. Yeah. Bam, bam. Yep. Before he runs and tries to get to. Yeah, I agree. Malgus. So, uh, so yeah, at the height of tension, we cut back to Esca, to uh, the Skull Knight and Luca. So it's something Yura does uh, quite a bit in this volume. So uh, we get a super atmospheric shot where you see like the top of the cliff and you see rocks falling down like into the dark pit. And then you see uh, the Skull Knight's, you know, shadow as he's, you know, uh, you know, standing not moving among, you know, lines of corpses. Uh, then we get, uh, how to say, <clears throat> Luca's, you know, unease, which breaks up the tension a bit as because she's, you know, held up in a skull knight's arm. And I, I love that, that's a little sweat drop on her face, you know, because he's not, mm -hmm. ex he's not exactly Prince Charming here. So, you know, it's just. Well, there's, there's, a, there's a few funny things about just the interaction. First of all, their, their demeanors are totally different, and she's treating this kind of comically. Also, she doesn't. She thinks she's dead at first, and so this whole exchange has like a whimsical tone to it, basically. Yeah. Instead of the overly serious nature of everything else. You can also. I, it's also one of the only cases where you see her. Uh, say she's not in control. You know, like she's trembling right. and everything. She's not. She's not very confident here. So I, I do like how Mira, you know, we went from a, as you said, a super high tension scene to one not, and I like how Mira accomplishes that by all, by both scene setting, like by showing the geography going down with those rocks falling, it, it it both shows you where it is, and it also calms the scene down with the way the panels work. <laughs> it's very effectively changes the atmosphere immediately from a super high tension to super low key. Yep, and also super fast and dynamic stuff to like you know. Standing, immobile, you know, the thing is just like, you feel yep. the weight of nothing going on, you know, where are we, that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. And, you know, you see, interestingly, uh, the Skull Knight asks her what, why she let us fall to her death, and she reveals that it was actually a calculated risk 
sort of, you know, where she expected to just, you know, maybe something would break my fall or I'd just break my legs and not die, you know, she's kind of, you know, half-assed plan. Love it. I love her <laughs> bullshit plan for how she's going to survive. Yeah, maybe sounds, I'd break my legs. <laughs> it sounds like the kind of plan I would come up with, so, you know, I, I, yep. I got to yeah. appreciate that. So anyway, uh, the Skullite dispels her misconceptions that she's dead and proceed to face off with the Apostle. And I, I, you know, I, I love how natural the flow here, where he's telling she's still alive and then saying she better stay put if she wants to stay alive. So mm-hmm. it's just, and then, you know, he gets down and he's, he faces a guy. He's like, okay, come on, you know, show yourself, you know, pointing his sword. So it's very, you know, to him, it's just conversational stuff. Oh, yeah, sure. By the way, just stay here because I got to deal with this guy. <laughs> and so as we get that shot uh, of the apostle, you know, into shadows about to show himself, of course, we shift back again uh, to get side where we see Mosgus and his goons unleash their newfound power. So you see the wings parting and everything. And uh, the others are, how to say, shocked by it. Even Guts looks surprised. So, and the episode ends. Right. This is the full reveal of their transformation. Before, when he dodged Guts' blow, it was unclear how he had dodged it. It wasn't really certain what had happened and now it's very made very obvious that they've become you know apparent angels right in that earlier panel it was kind of cool i didn't notice this before but there was like a you know um a hint of the wings coming out but now it's much Mm -hmm. clearer so that's pretty cool okay so now we're starting the episode hell's angels which always makes me think of a biker gang, so I like the title of it. And yeah, I, mean, I first saw that. I think I remember seeing the episode title written for the show whenever the the TV was running, and I was like, "Hell's Angels." They really botched that translation. And then I looked at it, like, nope, it's spelled out <laughs> Katakana, Katakana, Hell's <laughs> Angels. Like, okay, that's yeah. good pronunciation. Yeah, it's well, you know, Mura likes his uh, you know, little references and puns and stuff. So yeah, it's pretty clearly he's referencing the biker gang here. So yep, yeah. <laughs> So that was kind of fun. And uh, kind of continuing for what you guys were saying earlier, I think this is a great page because it, it's so economical and so tight in the way that it expresses what's happening in a very short amount of time. So we get the sense that Mosgus is turned around and is flying away with Casca. Guts is trying to get at him with his little knives, and they're blocked. And then we see that uh, he is that Mosgus is being protected by his disciples. Um this is also setting up the whole dynamic of the, the next fight, right? Because mm-hmm. this is the second time he's tried to reach Casca to Mosgus, basically trying to cut cut corners on this fight, just go straight to the head of it, and he's yep. not allowed to do that. And the disciples are protecting Mosgus, so it's the setup is Guts knows he has to go through all these people to get to Casca, which is you know how things play out. Um, I wanted to talk real quick about the nature of their transformation because you know we've seen several Behirit, uh, not Behirit, several. Uh, pseudo-apostle transformations at this point in the series. We've seen from the Counts to Roshins to, uh, I'm probably forgetting a few, but you, you get the idea. But these are very different, uh, angelic. And uh, I wondered if that's because they truly saw themselves mm-hmm. as saviors, or if it was simply something Mira wanted to accomplish for the character design and he chose angels. I do think it probably thinks, I, I think it comes down to, you know, Mazgus in particular seeing himself as the savior of the people and associating himself so tightly with the religion. Yeah, I think uh, because they saw, they saw themselves as, you know, like it's all derived from Mazgus' view. And I think these guys, being his servants, uh, shared his view. So if you told them they were saints or angels of death and mercy or whatever bullshit he cooked up, uh, I think they just, you know, 
I got along with that. But, you know, despite that, we also see that, uh, they, they do get a bit monstrous. Like, you know, their teeth, you know, oh, sure. uh, the bird guy, he actually becomes like a half bird. So it's like the good dude, you know, he, because he was wearing such a thing, he got monstrified into, uh, the costume he was wearing. So, yeah, I think there's a, a part of uh, monstrosity behind it. The, the, you know, the angel wings are just, how to say, the, you know, little uh, cherry on top for them. But, you know, like, even when Guts actually pushes Musgus, he transforms into these big old things that's not at all angelic. Like, his wings mm-hmm. become some kind of big fist-like Fists, stuff. basically, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I think, like, maybe if they had kept going, they would have actually morphed into, like, just big, ugly things and the angel part would have been quickly dropped. I mean, even now, it's just the, the wings, but the rest, like I said, the teeth, the bird guy, everything, they're, they're not very... I mean, you can tell these guys are just, you know, you know, down the lines, they're just monsters who have been infused with apostle power, just like the good guy, you know. He was, you know, this guy that's a ghost, so he turned into that thing. He's just, you know, that's what it works. It's, I, I think it's not insignificant the fact that the nature of these transformations is what the Beharit Apostle was talking yep. about early, or later in the, in the volume talking about. He's granting their wish, which in a way mirrors the, the actual yep. Apostle transformation. Like, they're grant, they're granting their wish, but it's in a twisted way that serves the Beharit Apostle and the. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So. And, and, you know, I think it's a good point because, for example, uh, you know, the Count turned, uh, you know, Zondark into Super Zondark, but, you know, <laughs> like Super Shredder in Tortue Ninja 2. Okay. But, uh. Got it. Yeah, sorry. But after he was cut and stuff, we saw that he was actually controlled by the Count, you know, like he had that kind of parasitic, uh, you know, slug inside of him. That's pretty disgusting, but at the same time pretty cool. And Roshin was turning her, you know, uh, kids into, like uh, servants, like little fake elves. But because right. this is a Beherit apostle, you know, he has like Beherit-like powers. So he grants wishes like a Beherit would do for uh, a human. So it actually mirrors what they want. You know, it's not just mm-hmm. him turning them into, I don't know, egg-like, you know, monsters. He, you know, so I, I think it's pretty cool how Mira did this, where this specific apostle power... You know, like it makes sense that a guy shaped like a parrot would have the power to, you know, give grant wishes, give power to others. So, you know, it's just... Yeah, I never thought about that before. But it's like he has a more open-ended, varied form of empowerment because he's a yeah, it ac- behirate, yeah, it actually makes total yeah. sense to me. And he could have actually I... been, like, if he hadn't been used for what he was used, you know, uh, bringing Femto to the world, he would have been a pretty powerful apostle because he could have just, you know, monstrified... You know, humans by the dozens creating an army mm. of, you know, pseudo-apostles. Yeah. yeah. I think that's what makes him one of the most interesting apostles to me is because he's not the one doing the fighting. I mean, obviously, he's not number one strong guy. He's He gets beat up pretty easily, but he uh, he has a really interesting talent that I think makes yep. him stand out. Yeah, he's very, very uh, indirect with all of his attacks right. and everything. He's just the guy in the background, which is mm-hmm. strangely appropriate. So. Yeah, it even makes sense in terms like thematically, like the Behirat being yeah. part of causality, you know, directed by yeah. causality, not taking action itself, but being guided of by course. events. And, I can't believe yeah. you never thought of that before. I never really thought about, you know, thematically, com- you know, relating his actions to the overall, like how Behirat's That's what work. the rereads are all about, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah here we are. realize stuff that you didn't realize, so. Nice. That's, that's the best part. Uh, so anyway, continuing here to the next page, Guts, for those of us who may not have been 
paying attention. Guts lays it out, says, no, these guys aren't apostles. They're pseudo-apostles. And A, pa- um, a panel missed by so many people. <laughs> so Lots of people missed that one. Just in case you had a little trouble, these are pseudo-apostles, but he's still worried because there's a lot of them. And... Uh, I really of, love that shot where he's looking at them from yeah. in the distance. Yeah, yeah. they're all like darkened he's by the light. Reflecting on what's going on before the big fight. Um, yeah. It looks like a Dark Souls boss battle. Is what it looks like. <laughs> he's going to be doing a lot of rolling, rolling out. Yeah, of that's right. So he's just reflecting on how he he dealt dealt with monsters in the cellar, and now we got angels in the tower. And yeah, he's he's had it up to here. So we get a nice pick of his chomp. Yeah, and, ah! I love I that's, love the that's guts. The, the guts shot. rationale. Because you know those yeah. chompers are going to be working later. Um, <laughs> so we get a nice shot of Casco. This is actually yeah. one of my favorite close-ups of her because I think yeah. it, it really recalls, this scene really recalls those like pulp science fiction covers where, you know, the monster's got the lady in the punches <laughs> and she's like, oh no! And then the hero guy or whatever has got his sword or his laser pistol or whatever is going for it. This is, very, <laughs> and this, I, and is, I, this is really, I think, um, reminiscent of that classic sci-fi I, or fantasy trope where the Hero's gotta go get his gotta go get his lady. I must say she she does look very pretty in that panel as well. She's like the sleeping beauty. Yeah, you can see Mira really like put a lot of love into this one panel because even her little eyebrow hairs are so nicely drawn. <laughs> very very neatly groomed. Very neatly groomed eyebrows. That's right. So I guess there we get a little uh, commentary from Jerome and Isidro. Who are just like commenting on the situation and it's like, what, what, what's he doing here? And <laughs> monsters, angels, and the black swordsman, what's going on? So they're just kind of taking in the scene to assist us readers, I guess. And well, so this, these well it's also things. interesting that Jerome shares that, you know, he, he and they've been tracking guts for two years, which Isidro picks up on and just basically uses that as fuel to say he's even cooler than I thought he was, basically. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, also, it's interesting that, that Jerome himself has been tracking Guts, you know, to, you know, not very high degrees of success, but, you know, he's been on Guts' trail for so long. It, it ties them closer than they were before. Yeah. Yep. It's just, it, it adds the monotony almost of it, where Jerome's like, this is his office job. He's like, oh, yeah, he's tracking <laughs> this guy. Sorry, what were you going to say, Az? Uh, no, just, you know, I was going to say the same thing. I was like, that he's not just, they're not just talking, you know, randomly. Uh, I find it interesting that they share this information. Jerome's like, what is this guy here? And Isidro is like, what, what? <laughs> and then he's like, hmm, I was right. He's a big name, you know, like, yeah. it's like it validates, <laughs> he validates his morning plan to somehow get guts to teach him stuff. And then Jerome... No, it's... Isidro is, is approaching it like a businessman might, like he's investing in the stock market. Like, yeah. oh, I guess I've heard this is a hot deal. Yeah, I know, but <laughs> it is kind of a stupid plan. I mean, I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, spitting on Isidro here, but... Like it is like very risky. He's 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 lucky to make it through all that stuff. And Jerome actually has to try to stop him from just jumping in the fight, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which so he will we do. We get a little Isidro forehead sheen there, um, five head sheen. I'm sorry. And then uh, I guess he's trying to get into the fight, and then, but uh, you know, Jerome is trying to stop him. So from there, we cut back to the fight, and and big muscly underbite guy. Who takes up like four panels is is swinging down. I, I have to say I don't know who drew the chains. I don't know if this was an assistant or Mira himself, but I want to give a shout out to whoever draw whoever drew all these chains. It looks like <laughs> it was a really hard job, so <laughs> that was amazing. But yeah, so there's an action shot, I guess, where Underbite Guy is getting that chain grappling hook, whatever, trying to get at him with it, and Guts is 
uh, keep dodging, I guess. So and what's then, interesting about this in, in, this particular encounter, and, and it, it goes to the rest of the fight as well, is now the dynamics have changed more because of the wings. This guy's now approaching from above. And, you know, Guts has to change his tactics as well. And it's actually how he's able to succeed is through uh, the different positions of everyone on the, on the battlefield. Yeah, he adapts right. himself. <clears throat> That's what I meant, yeah. All right, so this is, I guess, where the Dragon Slayer is an asset because he's able to use its height to get at him while he's in the air. Um, so get yeah, that. And then, pretty cool sorry. scene where the guy, you know, jumped at him from the back. But that guts, you know, jumps also to you know uh, reach him and manage to you know slash his arm off. Pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this might be a, a moment. Well, it's not spoken. It might be a moment where people underestimate guts because of his size and the fact that he's heavily armored. They might not expect him to be so agile, but he's mm -hmm. going for it. So he knocks the guy's uh, part of his mask and, of course, his arm off, which is puts him at a bit of a disadvantage. Right. And then, but since there are so many other guys around, we got the rabbit ear, rabbit ear mask guy coming at him <laughs> with his double eyeball pincers. And um, this this part always makes me upset. This this one page where he, I'm, I know I'm skipping around a little, but it's a, it's it's fine, a fast scene. Yeah, so I guess Guts is like surprised that he was able to get so close to him. And then he gets that one panel where he's looming over him with the little <laughs> the pincers where he's trying to get his eyeball out. And then, of course... Guts with his teeth of steel grabbed <laughs> it. And the guy, of course, was not expecting that. I don't think anybody was expecting that. Yeah, um, and he fucking headbutt him, you know. Headbutts him and sends him flying, which is such a great moment. I mean, this is like iconic Berserk right here. But yeah, it's it just goes to show like this is such a tense fight. You know, you literally don't get a moment to rest, which I think is why it's so important that we get so many like comedic moments interspersed here. Yeah, because this I is like, so. I like how the action pauses when the right. things are that close to his eye. You know, the atmosphere changes for a moment, it slows down, it freezes, mm -hmm. and then it speeds back up when guts chomps the thing. It's yeah. just a cool pacing. What, what I like yeah, about the rhythm is good. I was just going to say, what I like about this thing is that you can tell it's not an easy fight because even when Gus manages to get an advantage, like when he bites the thing, headbutts the guy, he tries to slash him, but the guy dodges, mm -hmm. you know? And so, and there's a succession of things where, you know, he like, he manages to take a shot at them, but they avoid it with the wings. And so, you know, that gives you a feeling of like Gus, you know, like his victory is not assured, you know? And, Right. Just as he's, you know, finished slashing at the guy, he dodges, another guy comes from the back. So it's just, you know, it never stops. This is kind of like if he went back in time and took on the Bakiraka in the sewers, only he had no support. It's just yeah. him against all these guys having synchronized attacks, basically. Yeah, it is actually yeah. very similar, because you've got a group of people who are all very specialized in different areas, and Guts has to counter them at every turn. He really has to yeah. fight for every inch in this, which is what makes it so interesting and exciting. Yeah, so. I guess the difference is like these guys are used to like you know be basically being security guards, but mm -hmm. they're certainly not warriors, and it kind of shows. They kind of they, they, guts just kind of walks all over him tactically. Like mm -hmm. they get through him to brute strength, but you know he outsmarts them at almost every turn. They also mm -hmm. they also complementary because you get like the big burly ones that's just brute strength, even stronger than guts. Then you got the you know small ones who are just agile and you know attack with. They have different attacks, so it's all this complementary stuff is also what uh, gives him trouble. Yeah. Yes. All right. I don't know. There's something. There's something I really like about the way he dispels this large guy's attack. The guy that comes through the wall with his wheel, 
you know, yeah. notes he doesn't have time to avoid it. So it seems to me what he does is just take the hardest swing he can to deflect it, to deflect it somewhat so that he doesn't get completely crushed by this thing. Yep. Yeah. I guess it, it sort of works. He does end up deflecting it, but he gets pushed back. It, yeah. But uh, Babyface Muscle Man uh, just ends up busting through the wall. So I guess he maybe yeah. uh, he might have. So you can see earlier that he kind of surprises <clears throat> Muscle Muscle Man and uh, kind mm-hmm. of sends him reeling in a in a opposite direction of what he wanted to. So yeah. he kind of ends up hitting a wall, which I guess that's. that's and we later see him covered in rubble. So yeah, yeah he, so he did not mean help. for that to happen. Yeah. So we kind of get a moment with Farnese here where she's just showed up and going, what the hell? So she gets this wonderful hero shot of guts just kind of emerging from the smoke and the rubble, um, which I, I imagine is a kind of a, it's an image of him that she keeps in her mind. Oh, yeah. Every night. Yeah. yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> well, thanks for putting that out there. I'm glad you were the one who said it. So, um Jerome and, and Isidro are just commenting on what a crazy fight it is, whereas uh, Puck isn't very impressed, I guess. He's like, yeah, I'm used to it. So, um, Farnese, we get a moment with Farnese just reflecting on how, um, or it looks like she's reflecting, but she, 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 she comments on it in a few pages. Yeah, and she does She's basically on talking it later, about so. how, you know, Gut's appearance causes her world to rip apart because, you know, here's this guy taking on who she had previously regarded as, you know, uh, upper echelon influencers in the Holy See. Right. So from there, we actually get what you were talking about earlier as about the monstrum. Here we get some, some big reveal showcase of the the inner, the what's under the mask, I should yeah. say. Right. So There's got, baby we face. Cherub, we got baby face. We got, I'm not even sure what to call <laughs> little guy. He's, he's got like a cleft everything. Well, yeah. It's, he's got wings for wings for ears yeah, so yeah that's that was pretty that was cute uh and then we got uh underbite guy who's uh, got a big protrusion in his yeah. head and he's also he he's not why like is he biting out. his arm uh, because, because i guess he didn't want to lose it right <laughs> yeah because the, the arm is where the chain is so he's got a whole oh, okay. chain you know so i mean <laughs> yeah. because he's a monster and you know look at his face he doesn't look too smart uh, he yeah. just decided to bite his arm for you know and why not by the way it's a big yeah. why uh, not indeed you know big mouse can probably get yeah. a big burger inside that. <clears throat> oh, God. Oh, yeah. man. Well, it's also kind of like a rematch scene of sorts. Yeah, the masks are <laughs> off, and now they've seen what Guts is capable of. They're regrouping for, you know, a second wave. Yep, pretty right. much. And so Guts is taking a moment here, and we see that we got Birdman and the twins and Mosgus behind him, so he has to basically get them out of the way before he can get at Mosgus. So he yeah. says, one step farther. So it's, to it's get- just... Uh, <laughs> yes, the princess is still in another castle, so he's working on it. <laughs> so from there, we end Hell's Angels. And we go back to Skull Knight and Luca uh, at the burial grounds. And Luca's just uh, kind of taking in the supernatural or the surreal sights. And she even says this is a very surreal imagery. And I always liked, for some reason, the the back shot we give of, get of Skull Knight. Uh, not that I'm checking out his butt or anything. Although that is interesting. <laughs> that he has the, the, the like the spinal column motif on his armor is very cool. But also this scene and the previous scene we were in with him. You know, we've never seen this Skull Knight this up close at this point in the series yet. This might even be the most up close we get of him and his armor design and just really just you know a scene about him <laughs> with him 
is very rare in Berserk. Yeah. So it's interesting. We actually never get another shot that has good off his back. It's That's a one. Yeah. Yep. remember seeing that and being surprised by it. Uh, but Luca's just, you know, trying to take everything in, trying to understand why this is happening, why these things are here. Uh, and she has the memorable line with a two-page spread. Uh, it's like the world has begun to crack here. Um, one thing I didn't realize until this, reading this particular volume, uh, reread, is the faces all laid down pointing up are reminiscent of the eclipse, the floor of the eclipse with the faces all yep. pointing up mm. towards the sky as well. Yep. The burial ground re- resembles that dimension. Yep, indeed. And it's not uh, like it's not a coincidence. Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, the appeared apostle still not having revealed its form yet, although you can kind of begin to make some guesses. Uh, you know, issues the very feeble, you know, uh, decree, please leave my garden. Humans must leave. Uh, of course, uh, Skull Knight just continues on Terminator-like, but uh, one of my favorite attacks, uh, you know, the appeared apostle uses his tendrils all at once, but Skull Knight, you know, effortlessly just makes a few swipes, oh, yes. you know, and, you know, simultaneous action um we've seen a few of the skull knights attacks and you know the eclipse for example and the emphasis is like speed and like you know he'll take one swing and then like the thing falls in like five different parts and here we see that kind of up close where he takes what seems like one action and it looks like five you know swings have happened and the tendrils all fall to the floor effortlessly and the behirid apostles immediately overwhelmed you know fear in his eyes and jumps over him to tackle yeah, Luca. Mm, he's he's uh you know in just one attack and one counter attack he's been rendered powerless. Well, he basically yeah. can't attack anymore. Like that that's it. He's done. Mm. He chose the wrong guy to fuck with. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to be honest. And I, I like that shot of his eyes where he's like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, he's yeah. not your not the apostles we've dealt with before who are a lot tougher. He's kind of a pushover. Yeah. Yeah. Not meant for direct head-on conflict. Nope. The Skull Knight manages to wound him a little bit, um, but before that, he's able to t- bounce off of Skull Knight's horse and attack Luca. That horse didn't do shit to, to <laughs> defend against that. Well, he you can you can say he rears up, but you know like, yeah. that's not that's not enough, dude. Like, come on, what do you yeah. what do I pay you for? You know. Oh, poor horsey. <laughs> and it wraps its gross legs around Luca and carries her off to its lair. Um, I like how just nonchalantly Skull Knight takes it, you know. But he comments on the wounds and his unique form. Yeah. Because he got a good look at the Behirid Apostle. You can, you can tell he's worried. You can tell he's like, yeah. fuck, I know where this is going. Oh, no. Yeah. He intuits probably what the Apostle's role is going to be yep. in the ceremony. He did. I would guess. So Luca opens her eyes and she's in the uh, very well lit uh, room, uh, lair of the Behirid Apostle. And she sees... Something calling back to the beginning of Volume 18, where we saw that priests were being skinned alive, or skin was being flayed and laid about. And here we have uh, an idol of the Holy See, you know, designed around the skin of priests. Does this remind you of uh, Michelangelo's self-portrait in the Sistine Chapel? The one where it's all its skin. (laughs) I never thought about that. Did the Behrat Apostle light all those candles? He, he definitely yes, did. Yes, wow. he did. And he also arranged that little sculpture together. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. a real artist. Which I find, like, you know, I find interesting, you know, it's just, it's very creepy. Like, it's it's so creepy, that thing. But, you know, <laughs> the way it mirrors the actual, you know, symbol, very, very nice, very cool. Yeah, he comments on, actually, I'm jumping ahead, because this whole scenario kind of plays itself out very quickly, but he begins basically witnessing, 
you know, who he is and why he is to Luca about, and I, I don't want to go through every single little bit because yeah, it's, it's long. just, it's, it's, it's very dense and long, but he talks about how basically he, his first memories were of scavenging for food, not being around people. So, you know, he grows up very isolated, not knowing who he is, what he is, what humans are. But, um, we see that he comes across a Behirat uh, at the base of the tower and he holds on to it. When he first encounters humans, they t- terrorize him and drive him away, uh, and he, you know, hides in a hole for a-, a time, scavenging for food, but just basically barely subsisting on what he can find around the tower. So basically, he's he's hardly he's human, really, in name only, and he doesn't really have any connections to any humans. He doesn't really have any connection to the world other than it, you know, fills him with with terror, and. He ultimately it gets to, bodies piled on top of him from uh, when the refugees moved in. He says uh, bodies mm-hmm. began to fall, and he eventually becomes covered by them, which leads him to a conversation with a god hand. Which I like how Mira doesn't bother with the god hand imagery here. He just talks about it. You know, the five angels visited him. He says it makes it much scarier, actually. Yeah, yeah. Which you know, it's a, it's a, it's super obvious. But I like m- mentioning that you know the five angels appeared here. Not the four angels, not the angels, yeah. but specifically, this is something that Femto took part in, a ceremony that he took part in at the time. Yep. So, in the past two years, of course. Um, I like... And again, I mean, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I like when he says that they showed him the world, you get to see a view from, like, outside the hole, but from the hole's perspective. Like, from mm-hmm. his hole, he sees, you know, the tower, and we see that kind of internal effect which I find very nice so he's talking about his world you know and the world they showed him and it encompasses that kind of era around around the album you know and I found that interesting also that that particular line really was interesting to me also because it's like he's describing basically being enlightened because his you know his his vision his perspective of what the world was was so hindered by him being a not really a human and living underground for so long well, but he's talking about his he, go ahead. he was a human he was just you know i know he was a human human in nature but i'm saying he wasn't part of society or part of civilization yeah he was just malnourished and probably deformed or something like that and you know half dead no i i'm certainly not arguing that he was not human i really meant he had no association or close ties with any other human so he was he wasn't part of any society. Basically, yeah, yeah, he was just yeah, yeah an outsider and uh, you know living wild. Anyway, my my point was that through his conversation with the God Hand, he gains kind of a, a knowledge or an awareness of the other of the rest of the world, which is which is unique. And it actually makes me wonder if you know Ubik or Conrad, you know, helped him come to that kind of understanding, similar to how they helped Griffith kind of nudge him along to his sacrifices. Oh well. yeah. If they help change his perspective on life. I'm I'm sure Ubik did. I mean that's his uh, that's his thing. That's what he does. Yep. Yeah. And he talks about um the the nature of his sacrifice and he sacrificed the world around him, which um so that he could achieve his dream, which is to hatch the perfect world. And then we finally get the full reveal of his form. I like the uh, the real of his uh, of his of his form where you see the eyes. Then you see that big mouse on the side, and then mm-hmm. bam, you see, you know, the the full figure. Yeah, he's nasty. 
So anyway, um, as we get to the next episode, we see the apostles back, you know, like uh, the opposite of the previous scene. And uh, his grossly uh, modified spine and ribs, uh, as Luca texts in what he told her about being an egg. Uh, we see a gorgeous double page spread of the cave as he, he expounds on that. And he explains that he's not just an egg, but the egg of the perfect world. So he describes all that is seen of the world, the chaos, the death, the despair, the fear, the deceit everything and he describes how humans gave form to their own unformed fears by creating those uh, heretical fists spreading even more fear so it's kind of a uh, how to say uh, commentary on uh, you know that whole little ecosystem there that's been created with uh, you know the holy sea hunting the heretics the heretics hunting the holy sea that kind of uh, you know vicious circles has been created and his conclusion and the focus of uh, his an more enormous mass uh, here, which I think matters, is that the world is ugly. So, <clears throat> uh, his garden was buried in the debris of that ugly world, everything like that, he keeps talking. He also reveals that he's observed uh, Nina and Luca, and comments on uh, the mentality of the weak, on how they resent those uh, they depend on, because depending on somebody shows the weak, their weakness, but they cannot reject the ones they rely on, so they cling to them, but keep resenting more and more. And he also makes a parallel with himself here, where while he detests that word, he cannot escape it. And uh, we see a shot at, of him at the top of the tower, uh, surveying his little word, um, as he says so. So we also see a theme. I find it interesting that we see a theme of uh, a warmth, a goodness. You see an old woman with kids uh, as he comments on, on how nothing will ever change. And then he reveals one more thing that all of these people want, the missing link between the old world and the new one that he wants to usher. And as he says this in some kind of a maddening way, we see his tongue on which is a brand. And uh, he doesn't finish his sentence on screen, but the next page is that of his makeshift falcon symbol. And we understand uh, what he implies, what he refers to is that the coming of uh, Griffiths. So yep. what's interesting about... I actually, actually wonder about... It does seem to me, as we come back to that, we talked about this before, several podcasts ago, but it seems to me that he does actually say it, but similar to yeah. when Guts talks about the nature of Casca, you know, the reader is not afforded the word. And I imagine he, what he's talking about is God, or God coming to the earth, which we see Luca responding to later. Yep. Uh, yeah, that's why I said he does not finish his sentence on screen, because uh, like we, mm, we do, right, we right, do right, not yeah. see on the page, but yeah, like you said... Luca reacts to it later, and I do think he finished uh, his sentence. And yeah, yeah, it's probably, I'm not sure it's God, but yeah, it's uh, at least, you know, one of the angels or that kind of thing. So, yeah. uh, off note, uh, here is what the brand on his tongue reveals, because he's a, yeah. he's a, like we said before, a very specific apostle, a unique one, so the most unique one of them all. And uh, so he sacrificed is of the world around him. So it doesn't mean the whole world. It means that little, you know, ecosystem of, you know, the refugees, the heretics, uh, the tower, all that little, you know, zone there. And he sacrificed, including himself, uh, as he was branded during his ceremony. So, but as we see later on, uh, it also included that world, as we said, because we see, uh, it's later on, but we see a giant brand appear, uh, made out of the fires in the refugee camp when the specters start to mass, uh, around the tower and to swarm it. So, 
Yeah, that really means, you know, he sacrificed himself and that, you know, geographic area uh, around there, which is, you know, the, I think a fit. The question then becomes like, how is that legitimate, a legitimate sacrifice? And it's because, first of all, it's someone who had nothing and, and had no one. And so had no, had no traditional sacrifice to offer that a normal human might. You know, and had established human relations and had loved and had hated and that kind of thing. His relationship with everything is on a totally different scale. So, but he does have a relationship with the world. Yep. He talks about how he's also drawn to that light as well when he's atop the tower. Yep. So, I thought it was interesting how Miura spun that and that it wasn't, a, it certainly was not a traditional sacrifice. And yet, he still built in some of the rule set that we come to expect for what a, a sacrifice means. Yeah. You know, the way I like to think of it is that when he got branded himself, it was the part of the sacrifice that involved his own transformation. And the brand that appears on the world is a price to pay for uh, the incarnation ceremony. You know, that's like when the toll is taken for all these lives to power uh, the transformation, I mean, of, you know, the child's body into that of Griffiths and of Femto coming to, to the earth. So, you know, it's a, it's a fitting sacrifice to serve the advent of a new, uh, you know, world and a new paradigm with uh, Femto coming to the earth. So uh, then we cut back to Gus fighting Mosgus man again, and uh, his blows are strong, but the you know big guy and his will can withstand him. And um, also we see the the guy he's crying toddler face. Uh, he's kind of a reminder <laughs> of this guy's sad situation, you know, because they're they're not like the the you know the apostle himself is a is a pretty I would say a pretty tragic character. Like all apostles have a tragic side to them, but this guy, he's really here. He got the shitty end of the stick. I mean, and this guy as well, you know. So we see them walk. You know, they walk well together. We see the the small, you know, flea man. He goes for Guts' head. Guts manages to parry with a dragon slayer. He tries to strike back, but the guy avoids. Meanwhile, the tall one throws his chained claw at him. He grabs and immobilizes the DS, and uh, you know it's a very dense, action-packed thing. You know, it all happens in a few pages, like earlier. Then you see the tank guy rush guts and pummel him through a stone pillar with a wheel. He sends it rolling back uh, as Isidro Farnese as the other uh, watch on. But in the same motion, guts as he slides on the floor, he takes a swipe at the guy, and then he pushes back forward to avoid the death blow of the wheel. And he throws a dagger as he does at the flying pests. And he manages to cut the foot of the, you know, big guy and to send the dagger in the eye of the, of the small uh, flying dude. So he actually manages to get them like that. So again, very dense, very fast action and very nicely done. And, uh, then we see, uh, a reaction shots of Jerome, who's Joe is just <laughs> dropping solo. <laughs> Magnifico. <laughs> yeah, we we see uh, Isidro who's <laughs> crying with tears as the magnificence of this as Puck tells him about the nth dimension style you know, of fighting, and Farnese is you know uh, internalizing you know she's she's being shocked you know uh, seeing this thing she doesn't understand what's going on that kind of stuff, and it ends with Mosgus looking on impassively with his kind of scary monstrous uh, you know composure. And Nina, who's uh, crying and you know scared, kneeling and calling for. I think Mosgus's face. I think Mosgus's face actually gives away that he's getting concerned a little bit. It's just it's a slight little expression. Uh, in his yeah, mouth, really. I don't know. I would say maybe getting pissed, but he's just you know. Yeah, I yeah. don't know. I'm not sure. Concerned is what I would use. He he looks angry to me. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's yeah. disapproving. We're on the same page. Anyway, time to bust out the fire breath. But. Mm-hmm. 
All right, so now we're starting with the episode uh, Omens, and we start with the kind of a Farnese-focused couple of pages while Guts is taking out the disciples. So she's saying, what's kind of what's going on, Father Mosgus? What is this form that she doesn't understand really what's going She's kind of trying to... Um, Makes absorb sense. all the information. These, these two titans in her life are now in battle, and she's exactly. trying to make sense of what's right and what's wrong, and where, where do I believe? Who should I yeah. root for? Who yeah. should I root for? So she's talking about the world I recognize comes crashing down in ruins, and then we get a very nice spread um, with Guts taking out uh, one of the disciples, the Dragon Slayer, and it's a very, very cool-looking spread. I really like the, the angle and the... The, kind of the motion you get with the feathers and the blood and everything. So I like that. Yeah. Um, and then I guess Farnese sees Nina and then she kind of understands how she feels, understanding how when you come up against something you are afraid of or you don't understand, you're, she kind of wants to bury herself. And yeah, she's talking about the child threatened by the dark knight has her Im- imaginary cloak of faith burned away and, and is illuminated. Actually, so, I, I really like that because, you know, Nina and Farnese in that sense are very similar. They are like, so Farnese can relate to Nina and, you know, uh, it makes her seeing her like that makes her reflect on her own self, you know, and I think it's right. again the beginning of that, you know, facade, that, you know, fakeness she's put forward, that kind of armor of face. She surrounded or scared herself with its beginning of to crack, you know, and it's what goes on in this volume and, and the next one. So, yeah, very interesting to me because as we see, you know, Nina is a, you know, I feel bad saying a throwaway character, but she's not a character meant to uh, come back in, this, in the series. So we saw her, she's weak. Even then she has a real redemption with Joachim and everything, but she's a weak character. She doesn't have the the medal, you know, to, to move forward. But Farnese... Actually, even though she shares that weakness and she's done bad thing because she's tried to hide, you know, from it to put on a brave face, she actually has a bigger redemption when she manages to, like, her true self is actually a better person, you know, whereas Nina could never become strong, Farnese actually can and, and, and will. So, and I like that, you know, this, you know, is the beginning of her reflecting upon that. And, you know, after that thing, you know, she felt strong with guts and that kind of stuff. And, and you know, it's a process of her trying to uh, gain true strength and not just, you know, the illusion of it. Oh, nicely said. I think that following from that visually, you see Farnese's expression is very different now than from her previous um, appearances. I think that her expression is softening now. And yep. so you kind of see that worried, like unsure expression of the "quote unquote" real Farnese, as opposed to the mask you've been wearing. So that was that was kind of a nice observation I, I just had while you were talking. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of ground zero for the Farnese that we we now know. Right. Uh, you know, we've we've seen shades of that changing throughout the past few, but it's really this fight in the next in the next few scenes that happen in the tower that really kind of cement her next few steps forward as a person. Exactly. Yep. <clears throat> So uh, we flash back to the fight. Guts is kicking ass, taking names. I guess he sliced off a part of the other guy's wing, and that's just a that's a, a nice action shot. You get his cloak flowing and the feathers. I think the feathers are a really nice effect with these fights. They're very nice. So yep. Isidro, he's trying to get in there, and Jerome is, <laughs> is trying to convince him to stop. 
He's like, you want to die that badly? <clears throat> and Sidro, uh, he, he makes a, an unexpected and uh, unprecedented move on Jerome's balls. And poor Jerome, I guess, is uh, he's taking that out. expression <laughs> is really something. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I actually wonder if Mira kicked one of his assistants in the balls just to like document, you know, the facial well, expressions he makes. As we know from the recent interview, he does a lot of research for his work, so that's, that's obviously right. a part of it. I, I so. actually also like Puck's uh, reaction, where he's like, what, what, "What did you do? What? what how did you do <laughs> that?" <laughs> yeah, he doesn't have balls, so I guess he's sort of confused. <laughs> and Sidro is like, you know, he's like a kind of ninja, you know, putting his hands like that, like you know, just yeah. <laughs> Yeah, smooth, smooth move. So I guess he has got his eyes on Mosgus, and, and uh, <laughs> we see that Mosgus is about to let out the god's breath. But Birdman tells him, uh, the, Birdman. he's saying, Birdie. This is a task for us. Yes, I'm saying Birdman. Birdo. Birdo. <laughs> Birdo, come on. <laughs> nice. He's going to throw so, eggs. Eggs, yeah. <laughs> now that would have been good. So he is telling him to kind of step back while the disciples take care of the dirty work, so to speak. So um, Mosgus um, unfolds his wings, and the twins and him uh, are about to fly off. Meanwhile, Isidro makes his surprise attack. Uh, Isidro punch, and uh, uh, Puck dives in with a really, uh, I would say, a very elaborate uh, <laughs> yeah. strike as elaborate as it is ineffective yes <laughs> so even with the double impact unfortunately it's like they were never there to begin with and uh, the 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 rock crumbles in the Sidro's hands and nothing really happens there but they're still <laughs> on for the ride it looks like and it's like how they like it doesn't even like it makes absolutely no impact yeah. whatsoever. Like, I know. Most of Moscow barely even takes notice of it. Yeah, but, it's like... but like, there are three spikes on his hat, though, left from Puck's oh, attack. Yeah. You know, Puck's attack did leave a mark <laughs> because he's cool yes. like that. But I, I, I gotta hand it to Isidro, you know, because you know, even despite what I was saying earlier and what people tend to not give him credit, but he has huge fucking balls i mean this guy mm -hmm. like you know you see const continuously throughout the series even when he had really like little skills like now he's just like he's just going for it you know like he's, he doesn't stop and you know i mean this is a better move than jerome would have done you know like he he actually he's pretty good for what it's worth so i, I gotta give it to him you know that's well, because if, if this were a shonen he would be the main character so he's got a lot of, <laughs> a lot to live up yeah. to yeah you know? <laughs> Good on him for breaking through the fences and actually, you know, doing something guts could yeah. just get that close and make it's a sneaking right. style, you know, the solid snake uh, yeah. action, you know. Yeah. Guts is a little more conspicuous than Isidro as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Isidro is, is compact so he can get in there. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, so Guts has finally gotten past some of the other disciples, so he's making his move before they fly off. But. Birdman gets in there with the wing action, so he uses his feathers as weapons to try and hit Guts in the face while following through with his, uh, I don't know, neck pincher? I don't know what to call that. Uh, it's called the man catcher. Man catcher. Yeah, it's a, it's a weapon that was used uh, historically to actually catch people. You know, they grabbed them mm -hmm. by the neck and they couldn't move with the spikes. Right. So it looks like he deflects it with the, his arm. But even as he tries to fall through, Birdman knows what's up and grabs him by the head with his little bird feet. 
which were covered by shoes earlier. So it was a bit of a surprise the first time <laughs> I read that. I was like, wait, wait a second. And his actual mask, it looks like it's transformed into a head of a bird. So mm -hmm. I don't know what's going on down there. But, uh, yeah, this is an exciting part because um, Guts has got that talon. You <clears> see it immediately. He's got that talon right next to his eye, which, again, is a. it feels like a recollection of the eclipse. So yeah, that it part's pretty scary. gives you shivers, you know. And, yeah, I like the yeah. fact that this guy's like, he's gotten serious, you know. Like, we weren't sure. Like, the others, like Walter said earlier, they're transformed, but, you know, it's manageable. They're still kind of human, but this guy... Like like you say, he just dropped his shoes and now he's a full on you know Birdman style. You know he's yeah, got he's a full on bird. He's got the talons. He's got the beak. He's got it all. <laughs> yeah, so he's committed. He's committed to that transformation more than the others. So uh, yeah, so we're left there hanging for a moment while we go back to Luca and the Barret Apostle, and so she is kind of in awe of what he's just told her. He's Pretty much just explaining how it's what he's saying is the truth. And you've already seen these miracles. What would you call monsters? No miracles. And uh, let's see. Yeah, he basically contextualizes or explains his reasoning for backing these the goat and the apostles and trying to give more context to what he's doing. But right. I also like throughout this whole scene, he's really he's talking about causality. I mean, he talks about it. He uses different wording, but... He basically acknowledges that there's a larger force at work and that he's merely nudging it along. Yep. And, you know, he even notes that Luca had a, a role in the today's today's events by bringing Casca to, to Albion. And, you know, he calls it the, the gears of fate here, but you know, everyone who knows about Berserk, he's really talking about causality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like he said, uh, uh, the guidance of a greater will, you know, that's, that's right. the part that matters because even causality is only a, a principle that's like a tool for uh, you know the idea of evil, you know, and that's that's why that's the, the you know puppet master behind this, you know, the one that's pulling the strings, doing the stuff. It's all coming back to that uh, that big actor, right? So I guess after that explanation about what we understand to be causality, Luca asks him the the burning question: Why did you bring me here? only to have Skull Knight drop out of the ceiling. And I love this shot because Skull Knight looks so cool. It looks like a giant shadow. And then the Barret yeah. Apostle's like, because his eyeball's popping out again. So Skull Knight dives in. He cuts up the uh, that art piece, the very spooky art piece, and uh, trying to get at the Barret Apostle. But he has disappeared. Um... He just explains. Go back to the the shot with mm -hmm. the shot with Skull Knight as he drops down as he lands. Yeah. Where is Skull Knight's sword? I always <laughs> I, can't, I can't find it, guys. Uh, it's somewhere above his head, I guess. <laughs> it's <laughs> hid, hidden in the shadows. You can't you can't see it because you know it's from yeah. it's in the shadows. After he after he lands, he's busy looking super cool. Well, so. he's not he's not uh, he's not attacking yet at this point. You know, he's just falling, and you know, as he falls, he just you know flashes. No nah, man, after he lands on the ground. Oh, he after he lands. oh yeah, yeah, right. Well, I think, you know, his arm is uh, turned back, as you you know. Mm. I think so. Okay. Uh, yeah. I, 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 I would say it's a stylistic choice. Don't I wouldn't okay. worry about it too much. <laughs> actually, it's, stylized. A, it's a good question, actually. I I always <laughs> thought uh I always thought he had, you know, slashed how to say, like he held his sword, you know, differently, but now that you mention it 
It's kind of odd. I forgot to draw the sword because it's there in the next panel with yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got it in the next panel. That's yeah. a good question. Weird. I can't. Mm-hmm. And I, but I, I, I like the, the next panel. It doesn't really matter. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> it's all good. I'm with him. I'm with him. <laughs> it doesn't matter. So I guess the uh, buried apostle in the shadows somewhere is explaining that he just wanted someone to know the story before he disappears, which is very yeah. enigmatic if you don't know what's about to happen. Also, like before the Skull Knight attacked, when she asked that question, he has this very reflective panel where it seems to me that he doesn't necessarily know the answer either. I mean, it's it's an impassive, you can read that panel however you want, mm-hmm. but he pauses for a moment before answering, and that's when the Skull Knight attacks, and he's surprised to see anyway. You know what I like yeah. about and it is that, the to me, it makes sense that he would want at least one person to know that he existed, you know, at least one mm-hmm. person to know who he was and what he did, and that he he was a man who lived, you know. And at the same time, it serves uh, to give the reader exposition on, on the story and stuff. I just think it's a, it's a great way to do it. And, you know, it just it makes sense from the point of view of the character. So I just like mm-hmm. um, how it all neatly, you know, ties together. I actually wonder about it being Luca that was witness to or she received the testimony of him. I keep, I've always wondered if that would play itself out any further. Luca being someone yeah. who's still around, yeah. who's been brought back into the story, who who knows the nature of why the world "quote unquote" cracked, yeah. and it's really because of this guy's yeah. actions. And I, I always wonder if Mira will fold that back into the story. I actually wonder the same thing uh, earlier. I was like, you know, it it would, you know, it makes sense. Like this character who actually has seen stuff, who knows stuff that no one else knows, you know, uh, except maybe the Skull Knight. You know, like it, you know, it's. Again, is it a coincidence that she's, you know, still around, that she's in Falconia, that kind of stuff? Probably not, you know. So, yeah, I actually would be pretty cool if if it came to play. And I think, I think it will. I think eventually, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, the nature of Griffiths will be revealed, or at least will be questioned. It will come into question in Falconia. And I think Luca will be able to, you know, step from the shadows and say, I know stuff. I know stuff. Yeah. (laughs) She's got, she's got the, I got She's things got to info. say. The you inside scoop. I like call me deep throat, and I don't know. Oh. I mean. Well, that kind of, kind of relates to how this scene closes up with Luca finally asking, you know, who, who the Skull Knight is, and who all these, what all these crazy things are about. And Skull Knight basically tells her to, you know, it's best that you not yeah. know, or it's not, it's best for you not to get too attached. But depending on how things go, you know, that that itself could change. Yeah. You know, he's talking about the state of the, the current state of the world, really. Yeah. He's just flashing forward to 20 volumes yeah. in, into the future. He's, he's saying that, oh, you know, in this world, you better not get involved with the supernatural, but now again, mm-hmm. you might not have a choice for much longer. So, yeah, pretty cool. Exactly. Yeah. Actually, this, this uh, scene is great because it's all, you know, Luca's investigative reporting. She's asking the hard-hitting yeah. questions. Yep. So... Uh, before the Skull Knight literally, you know, bounces out, um, <laughs> he picks up the Behirat from the, the crow's mouth. Earlier, the Behirat Apostle had said that, you know, his idol was not like the others. You know, true power lies within, is what he had said yep. about the the way his thing was designed. And, you know, of course, referring to the Behirat, which was just snatched up and swallowed by the Skull Knight. I like how that exchange is done in two panels. Just very quickly, matter-of-factly, quick it, swallow it, bounce out with Luca. Yeah, just getting mm-hmm. shit done, you know, another day on the job, yeah. killing apostles, swelling birds. Yeah. <laughs> another hard-boiled egg mm-hmm, yeah. from the abyss. It's snack time. Um, and I love the final panel, of course, uh, giant looming. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's yeah like, you know, black. The, the pushovers of the, you know, uh, evil world, but, you know, 
supercharged. <laughs> the one in the 2016 anime had a big smile on its face in this panel. Yeah, that probably, I don't remember it clearly enough, but it probably made it a little less scary. It was pretty goofy. Yeah, it looked... It's like a, it's like a Kirby's Dream Lane Yeah, it looked, oh, uh, it looked pretty stupid instead of being, you know, a mass of corpse corpses, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's supposed to be super scary and evil and alien, but, you know, it's like, hey, guys! <laughs> it's me, Raspberry Dude. I'm on emoji. <laughs> that actually reminds me. Um, when I was prepping for this volume for this podcast, I, I, I was drinking more wine the other night, and I actually spilled some wine on the page. Oh no! And it spilled on top of the um, the spectral ooze, and it gave them a nice like purple red tint to the page. <laughs> I'm like it looks really good, actually. You know, <laughs> like uh, that the, co- the color works very well for them. You the did a better job coloring than the guys who made the anime. Great job! Mm, That's I, did. I really did. Yeah. I actually didn't picture it being, for some reason, maybe it's the black and white effect. I didn't picture it being, like, red. I pictured it being mm. really dark, like, almost black, like, congealed yeah. blood, almost. I think I think, you're, I think it's supposed to be dark and so, red. So, yeah. where, so where I see it is more like, yeah, dark purple. I always, you know, I don't know, imagine them as mm-hmm. some kind of bluish purple, but very dark, you know, like, close to, to black. Just got that kind of hue or, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like if... if you know, blood and dirt and evil had congealed over a thousand years, what color would it be? Yeah. Let's ask Google. That's it for the show, guys. Uh, Thanks for tuning in. Uh, We'll be back in another month to talk about more Berserk. As you know, the series is on hiatus for now until early 2017. Early 2017 is a month away. A month from now. January 3rd, so... We'll get word sometime soon, I'm assuming, about the series resuming. Probably mm, January, February, March would be nice, so we'll see. Uh, either way, check out scalling.net if you want to uh, read more about what we're doing, what we're up to. Until then, we'll see you guys next month. Bye.